Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. How you doing? Good, good. Good to hear. Uh, we joke that we like to give Kirsten all the difficult announcements because she does such a great job being gracious with those things. Uh, but in all seriousness, we know this is a, a change for us, and it'll be happening in a couple of weeks. But, you know, one of, the re- one of the main reasons we did this is as we took the surveys and we've been talking to folks, we realized that there's about 40 families or so who are a part of North um, who are not uh, currently uh, attending, and at least half of those would return right now. Uh, if we had a mask mandatory service, and so for us, when we heard that, and it was an opportunity to get as many people into uh, in-person worship, especially a lot of folks that we haven't seen in a long time that are part of our church family, for us, it was a no-brainer to just move forward with that. And so thank you for being willing to be flexible, uh, in some ways for being willing to sacrifice that, you know, change back to 11 o'clock. I know that uh, for some of us, that, that, that may cause a little bit of a, of a change in your schedule on Sunday, but at the same time, we believe that it's worth it and all the changes that we're going to make. And, and just to be clear, we will be having children's ministry during both services. Um, so uh, just so you know that, we're expanding our current ch- children's ministry, which typically happens during first service, to second service as well. And so um, we're extending that so that everybody has a choice on where, where to attend. So thank you. Thank you again. All right, so this morning, uh, as we continue in the book of James, we're going to continue in our series called Getting Clarity in an Unclear World. You may have noticed that one of the reasons why we call this, uh, called this series Getting Clarity is because there are a few books in the Bible that are as clear, I think, as the book of James. In fact, I've joked about this uh, as I've been reading through this and preparing for sermons throughout this series, is that some, there's some weeks where I just want to, like, in my sermon prepara- preparation, just come up here, read the, read the passage for the week, and then just pray and sit down. Because in a lot of ways, James preaches itself. Uh, there are a lot of things you can just read through this and you can see the, 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 the straightforwardness, the in-your-faceness in some ways even, that James is bringing through the text. And one of the reasons, of course, that he does that is because he knows what's at stake. I mean, he is talking about some of the most important things that we could consider, uh, much less just Christians, just as human beings. Realizing what the gospel has done for us as Christians and then understanding what it means to live with the integrity and the character that the church of Jesus is supposed to look like. And so we're going to revisit one of those as we continue in James chapter 3 in just a minute. But one of the things that as we return to this chapter we're going to see is that this defining theme that's really happened throughout the entire book. Which is this understanding and this notion that our faith is something that makes a difference in our lives. And that having true faith actually displays what the Bible calls fruit of that faith, which is actually really good news, I think, because who wants a faith that doesn't actually change our lives or doesn't make a difference in our life? I mean, who wants a faith that doesn't speak into the way that we live and the way that we treat one another, the way we speak to one another? Who wants a faith that doesn't help us understand the world that we're living in? I mean, who wants a faith that doesn't have a concept for things like truth and beauty and justice? Who wants a faith that doesn't really have true hope in the end, right? And so, but as we get to, as we read through the book of James, what we realize, and really in many other places in the New Testament, of course, that the Christian faith gives us all of that. Because in the end, the Christian faith, faith in Jesus, is not just merely our lives changing. It is actually us laying down our lives and taking up the life of Jesus. And when we read through the New Testament, that's what we see. We see that if we have truly taken up the life of Jesus, as people who are new creations born again by the Spirit, then things should look different by definition. To put it simply, we should look like Jesus. 
as individuals and as the church. And so as James writes this letter, and in particularly as we're looking at the second half of chapter 3 today, we're going to be talking a lot about fruit and what it looks like as Christ followers to live differently and what it looks like to live looking like Jesus. And I've called this sermon uh, Living the Good Life. Because no matter who we are as human beings, I believe every single one of us live for what we believe is ultimately the best thing. We may not always think about it this way. We may not always realize it when we're doing it. But whatever it is we consider to be the greatest good in life, that is the thing that we will, uh, that we will automatically pursue. It's the thing that we'll celebrate. It's the thing that we'll spend our resources on, our money, our time, our efforts on. Whatever we believe is the greatest good, we're just kind of hardwired that way. It's the thing that we spend most of our attention on. And so for James, one of the things that we see in this chapter, and we've already seen it in the book of James a little bit, but he's especially going to drill down on it today, is that the good life is defined by what he calls wisdom. Now, as we've talked in this series, again, like one of the things that we want to understand if we get into any book is understanding the context of the author and understanding the context of those who he's writing to directly. For James, he's a Jewish Christian who is writing to a Jewish Christian audience. So people who are very familiar with the Old Testament. In fact, the book of James is probably the first book chronologically written in the New Testament. And so the only thing that exists right now as the Bible, as James is writing, is the Old Testament. So for Jewish Christians, they're very, very, uh, very, very cognizant of the importance of biblical wisdom because all throughout the Old Testament, they're told over and over again how important the wisdom of God is. In fact, there are sections of Scripture just known as the wisdom books. And in reality, all throughout the Old Testament, the, the wisdom of God is sprinkled through almost every single book. One of the most significant scenes that we see comes actually from 2 Chronicles chapter 1 related to wisdom, where King Solomon comes to the throne. And he has an opportunity to ask God for one thing. And every time I read this, I think to myself, would I, would I ask for the same thing Solomon asked for in this case? Like if I had God's, if I got undivided attention, would I ask, what would I ask for? If I had one thing to ask God for. Well, what's amazing is that Solomon doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask as a king for a bigger army so that he can defeat the enemies of Israel. He doesn't ask for health and a long life. He asks for one thing, wisdom. And God's so pleased with the fact that he's asked for wisdom that he makes Solomon one of the wisest men who's ever existed in human history. And as Solomon rightly understood, and as the Old Testament reinforces time and time again, is that wisdom is not merely just knowing things intellectually, or even just kind of knowing how to get things done. We often call these things street smarts and book smarts, right? Book smarts is like the things I know intellectually. Street smarts is like how to get things done in real life. Wisdom is not necessarily that according to Scripture. Instead, biblical wisdom is much more about morals than it is about the intellect. It's about a way of life more than it is about what we know. And so as we look at this, what we see is that the Bible often says to us the evidence of wisdom is fruit in our lives. We saw in the first part of James chapter 3, speech as an aspect of fruit. We're going to see in the second part of James chapter 3, and these two things go together, by the way, actions that demonstrate spiritual fruit. Listen to Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 as an example of what this looks like. You know, the book of Psalms is not often considered one of those wisdom books, but there's a ton of wisdom in the book of Psalms, and it starts off even this way. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. 
but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. God told Israel, his people of the Old Testament, that when you live out my law and you live out the decrees that I'm giving you, the other nations around you will look at you and call you wise. Because this is the imprint of God's character on them. And we see that here reflected in Psalm chapter 1, that he who meditates on God's law day and night is like a person who displays his wisdom by fruit in which he lives, by the fruit in which he lives. Now, it took every ounce of self-control that I had and not to name this sermon stupid is as stupid does. i got to tell you. I was so tempted. Because <laughs> I'm a big Forrest Gump fan, but also I feel like that just really communicates ultimately what James is getting down to in the second half of this chapter. Stupid is as stupid does. The way that we see the things that we do and what we choose to say reveals exactly where our hearts are at in many cases. And so it's clear that God's wisdom is meant to transform us. That's always been true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But here's the big change that happens when we get to the New Testament. It's what James is hitting on. Is that more than wisdom now, because Jesus has come, more than wisdom now just being like this thing that we are on a journey to discover, or even just the law of God, that we actually have the person of wisdom in Jesus Christ. And that as Christ followers, that his spirit is in us, that we commune with the ultimate person of wisdom, the wisest man who ever lived. John chapter 1 says that the Word has become flesh, and among what that means is that the, the, very, the very wisdom of God has been embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And it changes everything from this point forward. Listen to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the, prophet, by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The writer of Hebrews says that he upholds this by the word of his power. The very imprint and very glory of God is upon Jesus, it's the embodiment of the wisdom of God held together in the person of Jesus. And so as James is going to point out for us, this aspect of us following Jesus is more than us just following Jesus' example. It's more than us just following Jesus and his wise sayings, which he certainly says a lot of wise things in the gospel. It's about living the very life of Jesus as a Christian and as the church, which changes everything by his spirit. Now, um, This is why James hits so hard on the fruit, by the way, that Jesus' church simply should look like Jesus. And it's pretty straightforward, but you may know that that's a lot easier said than done sometimes. And so one of the things that we're going to look at is we're going to drill down on all of these lists. James is going to give us a list of all these different characteristics of what earthly wisdom looks like, what he calls earthly or even demonic wisdom, versus the wisdom of God that comes from above, or heavenly wisdom, that represents a picture of Jesus. And we'll get into these words and the definitions of these words here in just a minute. But let's read from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And as we do, notice the contrast between the two types of wisdom that James presents for us. And he says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? 
By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now you can see the contrast here. And really what it seems like James is doing is he's contrasting what is actually going on in the church that he's writing to. A church that is actually full much more of the fruit of earthly wisdom. So there's division, there's dissensions, there's disunity, there's a separation between the rich and the poor that's going on. Right? There's rich people who are forgetting to love and to serve their brothers and provide for their needs, those who are really, really poor. And so all of these things James is calling out as these things that are a result of the wisdom that is demonic and earthly. And you can see its fruit everywhere in the church. And what he's saying is, look, at this is what's going on in your church, and this is what it's actually supposed to look like when he gives us a picture of godly wisdom, wisdom that comes from heaven, wisdom that looks like Jesus. And before we get into the definition of all these words, I want to call us back to this first verse here in verse 13, because I think it's important to really take a moment to pause on this. And he asks this question, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear that question. Who is wise and understanding among you? I think many cases when we think about somebody who is wise and understanding, we think about somebody who's maybe a little older, who's been through some things in life, maybe somebody who knows a lot about scripture or theology or maybe a field that we're involved in in work, maybe somebody who uh, seems to know how to just get things done. But notice that that's not the definition that James gives as far as what wisdom is from a biblical standpoint. He says this, this is what it looks like to be wise. Let him show it by his good conduct and his works in meekness. That word meekness means also humility that comes from wisdom. So he says nothing about the age of a person. He says nothing about how much that person knows about Scripture, how much they can spout off at a moment's notice, how much they've been through in life, and whether or not they can get things done. He says the standard of biblical wisdom is this. Let him show you by his good conduct. Let him show you by his now, how is that defined? Well, we're going to get to it in these last couple verses, verses uh, 17 and 18 here in a minute. But just know that that's where he's focusing on. And then he gets to this place where he says, where he defines all these places or all these aspects of um, also earthly wisdom. Now, here's the thing. I know I'm going to get into some definitions. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. I'm going to get into some definitions of Greek words this morning, biblical Greek words. And I'm doing this for a reason. I'm not doing it because I like, I like to do this. I don't do this often. Um, but I think what is so important about going through it in this section is we can say all day long, this is what earthly wisdom looks like, and this is what it looks like to look like Jesus, right? And depending on what your understanding of that is, it could mean a bunch of things. But it's one thing to say, let's look like Jesus, and another thing to actually unpack these words as they were meant to be understood when we read them. Because these words all have a Greek root in them, or a Greek, uh, a Greek original word in them that we translate then to English. And you, if you were reading from a different translation, uh, we read from the ESV here, I just read from the ESV. But if you were reading from a different translation, you may have noticed that there are different words that are translated in the same place that we just read this in. 
And there's a reason for that, is that those Greek words mean a few different things. And as you understand a little bit more about what those words mean, it unlocks a lot more application for us. So we're going to do the work of going through these Greek words and the definitions of those words here in just a moment. I have to say that I was trying to do everything I could. Uh, I was thinking to myself, how could I make this fun? for us this morning. Because I know that's probably not the thing you were looking forward to when you walked in on a Sunday morning. Like, I really hope he does a list of Greek word definitions. That's what I'm really looking forward to. So maybe that's fun for you. Maybe, probably it's not, though. And so I was thinking to myself, how can I make this fun for everybody? And I thought, and I thought, and I thought about it, and I couldn't come up with anything. And so it's not, (laughs) and so, in other words, it's probably, it might not be fun, but if you'll stick with me, I believe that it's valuable this morning. And here's the thing. Let's start here really with this headline where he talks about what it looks like, what uh, earthly or demonic wisdom looks like. And he uses this phrase as like a headline. He says this, it looks like bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now here's where bitter jealousy comes from. This Greek word, this Greek phrase really, it's a combination word that's up there on the screen. You can see it there, bitter jealousy. And I'm not going to read all the Greek words, by the way. It's been way too long since I've been in a Greek class. And so I don't want to look like, look like a fool up here. But these words are pretty easy to pronounce. The first one comes from zelon, which means, which is the same Greek word that we get the English word zeal from, which of course means desire, it means passion. But when you combine it with pikron, which means bitter or harsh, literally what you get there is a desire that is harsh or bitter. That espouses bitterness. And so you'd ask the question, okay, why is it that that zeal is so bitter? You combine it with the next phrase, selfish ambition, and you begin to put the puzzle together, which comes from that Greek word that is listed up there, which is often used to describe discord between two self-seeking pursuits, particularly born of selfish motives and unjust means. So what you're getting there is somebody who has... Uh, motives that are self-centered that end up when they're exercised in the church creating this bitter jealousy and this desire or passion that is harshly and bitterly expressed, right? And so you put those two things together and the heading of this phrase then provides us with a little bit of a picture of what's, what it looks like in James's church. Remember at the beginning of this chapter in, in verse 1, he's addressing the teachers and the leaders and talking about their speech and the things that they're saying. And it seems like if we're putting this all together, what has happened is that teachers and leaders have gotten into that early church based on selfish ambition, wanting status, wanting power, wanting influence in the church for themselves, maybe even wanting money. And out of their greed and their lust for power, they've created divisions within the church, in the early church. And it's created discord and it's become toxic to the church in general. And as a result of this teaching, as a result of the leadership, the church has become toxic as well. So then James draws back to a description then of the source of this wisdom. Clearly showing that those who were conducting themselves in this way, no matter what they said about their position, no matter what they said about their perceived authority, clearly their authority did not come from God. Because it says this, their wisdom is characterized by being first of all earthly. Earthly is in contrast to heavenly wisdom, of course. But this word comes from a word that is often opposed to, to God's will and purposes. And so, in other words, it has its focus in the things of earth. And so, if you look at it this way, from a worldly perspective, there, there are many people who would say, well, you know, greed is good, right? Or it, it's, it's actually a good thing to get as much status as you can, as much impact and as much influence as you can, as much power as you can. 
There are a lot of folks who are bent on climbing as much of the status ladder as they possibly can. But of course, in this case, this is not representative of God's wisdom. Secondly, this wisdom is characterized by being unspiritual. Now this word that's used here is a rare word, but it it has to do with life, or if you look at it this way, a spirit without the uh, the influence of the Spirit of God. What it means essentially is this, that it is almost like an animalistic response to natural stimuli, driven by base desires of things like greed, lust, power, natural pleasures, and being governed by those things. It's the desires that are unspiritual but are earthly and are earthly. And then finally, this word that's translated demonic. Now that's a big, complex Greek word, as you might notice. It's a word actually that doesn't exist anywhere else in the New Testament in the Bible at all, and a word that actually didn't exist anywhere else in ancient Greek. So it seems like James actually constructs this word to describe what is specifically going on in that setting. And where we might say it's unspiritual, this wisdom is also demonic in the sense that it is not only opposite of the work of God, but it's actually actively opposed and bent on destroying God's will at Jesus' church by its demonic influence. So as you can see, this is dark, it's tough, it's difficult, and it is something that when you put it all together, really helps us understand why James is so in our face about this, or in the face of those in the early church. Because what's at stake and what is beginning to fall apart in the community of the church that is there is so important to save that James is doing whatever he can to address it head on. All of which brings us then to the characteristics of the heavenly wisdom that he talks about, this contrast between how they were and how they were called to be in Jesus. Now, here's one thing I want us to consider. We're going to give a list here in a minute. And I know whenever we uh, encounter a list in Scripture, there's a temptation to kind of make a checklist out of those things and try to check off, okay, how am I doing at this? How am I doing at that? And those things are good as a litmus test. But what I want to help us see is that all of these characteristics that are listed here actually go together and they feed together. What they really are are a portrait of the character of Jesus. Just like fruit of the spirit list in Galatians, right? We see that come up. What we're seeing is love, joy, peace, uh, patience, self-control, etc., etc. All has to do with the character of Jesus. And it's meant to be all combined together. Much much less like a checklist and much more like a way of life and an aspect of character, okay? So, that being said, let's pick it apart one by one. (laughs) First one is this. Meekness, which is also translated as gentleness or humility. In other words, it's the opposite of self-seeking or selfish ambition. Instead, what it is is others-centered. Wisdom that is displayed in humility by action, by works of humility, obviously displays works that are done for the benefit of others rather than for ourselves. Tim Keller says humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking about ourselves less, so that we think of others more. That's a characteristic of humility. Secondly, this wisdom is pure. The word in this context for pure means undefiled. It means full of integrity. It's the opposite of a double-minded person. You know that we've been reading so far in James, and we see James also always refer to, or frequently refer to this double-minded person. Um, who will not receive anything from the Lord because his motives are mixed. Pure is the opposite of the double-minded person because this is a person that is pure in motive and the integrity of their actions display their motives. 
In other words, they don't have hidden motives behind the scenes. The integrity of their action shows where their motives are at. Third, they're peaceable. The word peaceable literally means someone who loves peace. It's not someone who stirs up conflict or division or dissension, but someone who loves peace and promotes peace, especially among God's people. Fourth, this kind of reason is, is characterized by being gentle, or uh, uh, excuse me, this kind of wisdom is characterized by being gentle and open to reason. I think these phrases are both kind of best taken together to mean that someone who displays godly wisdom is someone who is on the side of truth rather than allowing themselves to be taken by factions or emotions or biases. They are someone who is ready to listen and slow to speak. They're a, person, they're, they're a person who's able to balance their emotions and their reactions with what the truth of, a, 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 of the situation really is, of reality really is. Fifth, they are full of mercy. You know, mercy uh, has been defined as, especially in the gospel of Jesus, as not getting what we deserve. In other words, and, and, the, and the way that we flesh this out is that because of the gospel of Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice in our place makes it so that the punishment for our sin is laid upon him and the punishment is not, is not given to us for our sin anymore. That's mercy. We get what we don't deserve is another way of putting that because we get grace because of Jesus going to the cross in our place to pay the punishment for our sin. And as a result, we get forgiveness, eternal life, reconciliation with our God, and that's mercy. And so someone who is full of mercy doesn't lead from a place of judgment but leads from a place of mercy recognizing that God in Christ has given me this mercy, and so I don't feel the need to get retribution, even against someone who has wronged me. I don't feel the need to get my pound of flesh from someone who I feel has treated me wrong, but instead I give them what they don't deserve, which is love and grace out of mercy. And then finally, sincere. Now this word sincere, you may see it on the screen there, and if you can pick this out, it comes from the Greek word hypokritos. Now hypokritos may sound familiar. Hypokritos is actually the Greek word, the source where we get the English word uh, hypocrisy or hypocrite. And what that word essentially meant in the ancient world was it referred to somebody who was an actor on stage. So they would call that a hypokritos, a guy who got up on stage and acted one way, of course acted differently than he really was, and the idea was that a, a, a hypocrite, somebody who's acting with hypocrisy, is duplicitous. They act one way in one situation, and they act another way in another situation. That prefix on the front of it is actually means non or un, if you want to put it in English terms. So it means non-hypocritas, or un-hypocritas, someone who acts without hypocrisy. They have integrity. They are not one thing in one situation and something different in another situation. So, as so we get to the end of this, we've, had a, we've got this list, and we've got all these things, and we've broken them down with definitions and all that kind of stuff. And all these things have an integrated relationship. But I think, I think it's important also to just get a sense for like how these things go together, and what exactly is James's point in writing this. Now, I think, um, as I was trying to distill this down, I came across this. Uh, in a commentary that was written by David Nystrom, who's, a, who's written a commentary on the book of James. And he says this. I think it's a really good way of summarizing what James says in this section. And there's four points that he comes to within this statement, but I think it very well captures the point James is trying to get across. Here we go. It's this, uh, number one, 
Where there is divisiveness, there is no wisdom. Number two, wisdom is peaceable. Wisdom is peace-loving, in other words. Number three, therefore the peacemakers are the ones who possess wisdom. And number four, the ones who create tumult and discord and do not possess wisdom, however much, or do not possess wisdom, however much they protest to the opposite. Now the character of wisdom there is something that has integrity. And I think in all of these cases, as we look at how these things hold together, again, the call of this and our response is not necessarily to look at a checklist and say, well, I'm really good at being peace-loving, but I'm not so great at being open to wisdom. Or I'm really good at being humble, but I'm not so much good at being pure, or whatever it may be. Again, this is an encouragement to see that just like a place like in Galatians where we're given the fruit of the Spirit, that these are the characteristics of Jesus. And if we're following Jesus, if we believe that our life is actually, the the life that we're living out is the life of Jesus, then it should look this way in our lives and in the church. And the spiritual fruit that we see is evidence of the health of the Christian life and is evidence of the health in a church. And the lack thereof is evidence of where there needs to be transformation and needs to be healing and new life born. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, make the tree good and the fruit will be good. Now if you're growing a fruit tree, right, let's say you're growing an orange tree, you don't get new oranges by just trying to make oranges, right? It's not like you run up with a fertilizer and rub it on the place on the branch where the fruit comes out, right? At least, right, do, we, do you know that? We understand that, right? Okay. I hope, I'm telling, I hope I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. But you don't put the fertilizer on the branch. You put the fertilizer at the base of the tree where the roots are. And when the tree's healthy, the tree will bear fruit. And so Jesus is the one who makes the tree healthy. Now it's our role when we look at the tree to see if the tree is withering or if the tree has not put out fruit in a couple of years, that there's probably something wrong with the health of that tree. And so we're called to participate in the same way that we have been saved. We are also, by grace, transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And if the standard of fruitfulness is Christ-likeness, then that's what it looks like for healthy fruit to take root. Now, we can't fake true spiritual fruit because it comes from the wisdom that only comes from heaven. If we talk about like what it looks like to have fruit within a church, um, it's not always typically what we may consider it to be. In other words, it's not just always like energy and performance and the amount of people you have in a church and the amount of money you have in your savings account. Those things aren't bad. They can certainly be indicators of a strong church. But in the end, you can produce all of those things without Jesus. You can manufacture all of those things without the Holy Spirit. If you want a lot of energy in the church, all you got to do is get a lot of energetic people and give them a lot of coffee. You'll get a lot of energy on a Sunday morning. Maybe too much energy. If you want a performance, all you need is talent. Just bring talented people up here on stage and have a performance. We've got some talented people in our band. They could produce a concert for you every single week if that's really what it was about. All you need, uh, you can gather a crowd with a train wreck Or you can gather a crowd just by entertaining people. You can get money by getting a salesman together with a good business plan. You can raise enough money to do a lot of things that you want to do. But in the end, 
You can do all of those things without Jesus. And so what you cannot fake is spiritual fruit because that comes alone from the presence of Jesus in the church. And I think it's during times when we face trials. We've been talking a lot about trials, of course, because of what we're going through right now. It just is what it is. And I think in the book of James, when James opens up the book and says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials because it reveals your faith, that's the heading under a lot of what he is talking about. That just as we are facing trials, that church was facing trials in many ways in the first century that he's writing to. But it's one of the things that trials have a tendency of revealing in us, and it is exactly what is going on oftentimes in our hearts. Where does our faith ultimately lie? Um, I think a proper, uh, a really good metaphor for this is maybe the storms that come into life. We often use that as a metaphor. I think that's appropriate. It makes me think of the storms that came through a couple weeks ago in Phoenix. Before those storms, I could look out in my backyard. In fact, I remember doing this before the storms came through. I was having coffee and just looking out my backyard uh, one morning, just admiring how clean my backyard was. Thinking to myself, we just all the leaves had just gotten cleaned up, right? We had gotten all the branches that had fallen off, all the dead bark off the palm trees out of the pool, and everything had been cleaned, and I was just admiring how beautiful it was. And I remember two days later, after two days of storms, I looked out that same window, and there was junk everywhere. There was trash, there were broken branches, there was palm bark that was floating in my pool again. The water had gotten into my drains, and so my drains had kicked up all these leaves that were in there, and it was all over the place. You were looking at me thinking, how dirty really is your yard? It was pretty dirty. I mean, usually it was pretty clean, but in comparison, it was a complete mess. And as I thought about it, I was like, where did all this stuff come from? Well, it came from, like, behind the house, that part that you just neglect because you don't see it. There's a pile of leaves back there that just got blown right into the middle of my yard. The dead bark that was hanging off the palm trees, that came down because it was dead and the wind had blown it away. Stuff that had blown out from underneath bushes that I couldn't get to was now right in the middle of my pool, right in the middle of my yard. Here's the point. Storms have a tendency of doing that. They bring out all of the stuff that maybe we don't see right away and maybe is even hidden back in the corner behind the building or underneath the bush and all of a sudden that storm has brought all of that stuff right up in front of us. The beautiful thing about it in the gospel is that whether those things, spiritually speaking, are mistakes that we make, wrong thinking, or even outright sin, in Christ, those things have all been forgiven for us. But at the same time, Jesus wants to transform those things in our lives. And he calls us, just like we sang earlier, to bring those things to the foot of the cross, knowing that we've been forgiven, but knowing that same grace that forgives us also wants to transform those things. Those things that are gaps in our discipleship, those things that are blind spots in our hearts, are brought front and center so that Jesus can deal with them. In the end, what this looks like is the experience of true wisdom that God is trying to give us. You know, so many times, we don't realize this, but God is trying to give us so much more. C.S. Lewis once said this, so much more than what we actually want out of life. It's not that our desires are too great. It's that our desires are too, are, are too small for what God wants to do. This picture of wisdom that James presents for us here is the ultimate ideal of the good life according to Scripture. Listen to Proverbs 16, 16. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. 
may have noticed James used those same two words at the beginning of verse 13. Who is wise and who is understanding among you? Those are the people, they are the people who seek out the wisdom of God as something that is more valuable than gold, as something that is more precious than silver. And so I want to give you three ways as we close this morning in response to respond to this. How is it that we cultivate this wisdom in our lives? I think first of all it starts with listening. Wisdom starts with listening. And there's no context where it's more important to be slow to speak and quick to listen than when communicating with God. I know that in a lot of cases, this is true in my own life, when the times when I, when I pray most fervently are the times when I'm asking God for something, when I want God to do something. And there's nothing wrong with that. God wants us to come to him as our Heavenly Father. God enjoys those things and it pleases him. But at the same time, there is a place for us to just be quiet and to listen to God. There's a place for us to listen to the, to the small voice of the Spirit as he speaks to us, and often through God's word. And that's one of the primary ways we listen to God is through his word. And I would encourage us as we listen to God's word, as we read God's word, that we actually listen with faith. That we listen in a way where we are hearing that that what God is speaking through those words are being spoken directly to me in my life, and they matter. And they have power to them. You know, for some of us, we're you know, maybe in a, in a Bible reading plan where we're trying to get through the Bible in like 30 days or something ridiculous like that. So we read 15 chapters of the Bible a day just to get through it. Um, those things have their place, don't get me wrong. But maybe for some of us, it's time to put down that huge you know, 15 chapter a day Bible reading habit and just really take two or three verses and read them with faith. Allow them to change you in a way that's profound. Listen to what they're really saying. You know, one of the practices I try to engage in every week is in preaching the sermon that I'm going to preach that Sunday to myself as much as possible during the week. I think the reason for that is because it's often a lot easier to speak than it is to listen. And slowing down and speaking that sermon to myself, so to speak, makes me listen to it first before I even speak it. In a book like James, it's really easy to point the finger at somebody else Because you can see all these clear examples of like, hey, that's what you do, right? And it's easy to point the finger at other people. And in fact, in some cases, like, you may have even gotten the sanctification nudge elbow today from your spouse in one of these areas. Certainly probably last week, I would think, as it came to words, right? The power of words. But we're told first to listen, to receive with humility God's word first. Secondly, ask. Going back to James chapter 1, James tells us to ask for wisdom. If you lack any wisdom, if you lack godly wisdom, the character of Christ in your life, ask from a God who so generously wants to give it to you. We see an example from Solomon's life, again, where he asked for wisdom and it's pleasing to God. I think we can take this as a promise that God is just waiting for us to ask him. And as much as we hit things in our lives, we're like, God, I need to need to get out of the cycle of what I'm in and I need transformation in this. And as much as that causes us a desire to want to change, know that God wants to transform that thing in your life even more than you do. And he's waiting for you to ask. Ask for wisdom. And I think there's a reason why people who tend to pray more and have an abundant prayer life tend to be the wisest people you'll come across. Because when you have a rich, abundant prayer life, you're spending time with Jesus. And when that happens, you tend to look more like Jesus. It's like anything else. 
The people you spend time around, you tend to think like them, you tend to, to act like them, you tend to, to do those kinds of things, right? Except this is the sovereign God who has actually put his spirit in you. So how much more does he impact your life when you spend time with him? And then finally, listen, ask, and live and learn. You know, to see what true wisdom is, one of the things we've seen from this chapter is that true wisdom is seen in fruit. It's seen in the way that we live. It's seen in the words that we say, according to the first part of James chapter 3. And we all live by some kind of a wisdom. I don't, I don't think some kind of wisdom. I don't think any of us get up in the morning, well, almost, almost none of us, get up in the morning and think to ourselves, I want to be a fool today. I just want to live by foolish things today. I say almost no one because uh, there might be some. Uh, just judging from the fruit. But everybody lives by some kind of wisdom. And that wisdom displays itself in the way that we live. Is there true fruit in that or not? And it's a process of learning. We live it out. We make mistakes. We sin. We stumble. We repent. We come back to the grace of God. He transforms that thing, changes it, and we keep moving. We are always people in process and people growing in the wisdom of God. It can never be exhausted and God is always faithful to continue to change us and transform us. It's almost like the infant who first grabs onto the furniture when, it's, when he starts walking and he eventually lets go of the furniture and starts walking and he walks a few steps and he stumbles and he falls and he gets back up and he trains his legs over time to begin to get stronger and to, to learn what it means to walk, to have his balance and all those kinds of things. It's the same kind of thing in the process of learning and following Jesus and walking in the Spirit. We're always growing in that way. So, as we close this morning, one thing, um, you know, there isn't a lot really of frills or illustrations that we need to close with this morning. It's just this. But when you read the book of James again, as we started from the beginning, uh, saying this in the beginning, these words are so clear and straightforward that when you read these words, I think in many cases it's clear exactly what to do. The question is, how we, will we respond with faith to the God who is calling us to himself and calling his church to live this way? Because everything we need is given to us in Jesus. It's a question of whether or not we will respond in trusting what he has given to us. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that you are faithful in every circumstance. When you call us to yourself and you give us words like what we've read here this morning that challenge us on the one level and encourage us on another, we know that you are a God who works good things in every circumstance. And we know that uh, as harsh and as difficult as it may be to go through things that are trials in our lives, as difficult as those things may be, and then to actually see the junk that comes up when we go through trials, whether they're small trials or big trials, it, it sometimes just adds more discouragement to our lives. And so we pray, Father, that we would remember to be encouraged by the fact that you bring those things to our attention for a reason. You mean to deal with them. In the cross, you have forgiven them all. And Lord, you mean to transform us so that we might have this, as Proverbs says, this thing called wisdom that is more valuable than gold, that is more precious than silver. Lord, change our desires, not that, that our desires would be less, but that we would be, our desires would increase, that we would know that because our desires are so great and strong, that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy them, which points us ultimately to you. So Lord, work in our hearts, expose those things that need to be dealt with, and in the end, Lord, we ask for the faithfulness 
of your spirit to do his work in us. We thank you, Lord, that you have called us Christians, followers of Jesus. We thank you that it's by his mercy that we can come to you and ask these things knowing that you hear us and knowing that just as a child comes to their father, you delight to hear them from us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. We're here in a season right now that's uh, typically been known as Lent. And, uh, you know, if Lent is too liturgical or Catholic for you, I understand. So, you know, don't worry. Don't, don't, you don't have to listen to anything else I say. But I, I will say this. Uh, we're a non-denominational church, and so we don't officially uh, practice Lent. But I think the idea behind Lent, some of the ideas behind Lent are can be valuable for just what we've talked about today. Lent is kind of like a spring cleaning of our spiritual lives. Uh, typically in observing Lent, people give things up, like maybe social media or media that are distractions, so that we can engage more in a, in a constant rhythm of being in prayer and Bible study and communion with God. And so this is a chance for that. It's also a distinct reminder of our sin as we approach Holy Week. And we look at Good Friday where our sins were forgiven, and look in anticipation towards Easter Sunday. It builds that anticipation. And so maybe for you, part of that living and learning might be uh, this, this year, uh, looking at the practices of Lent, to, be, to take an opportunity uh, to get rid of those things that might be distractions in that way, so that you can engage more in the rhythms of what Jesus is doing in your life. Um, Related to that, of course, is prayer, and we want to pray for you, and so uh, we have prayer cards that are back at the table back there as you leave this morning, and if you will fill out one of those prayer request cards and drop them in the offering stands, those black offering stands, we would love to be able to pray for you this coming week. Uh, when we get those cards, we pray as a staff, as a prayer team, and as an elder team throughout the week for every one of those requests we get. And so we consider it a privilege and a joy to be able to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life, family member, neighbor, whoever it may be. We love praying uh, with you and for you. So uh, have a great week. Enjoy your week. And we'll look forward to seeing you again next Sunday. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.